It is spoken in my village of an evil that lives in the mountains above. Evil? An evil that appears as a man when it wants to hide its true nature. And that night, he feeds on the blood of the innocent. The elders, they made bargains for the safety of our people. You were given to this man. It is not a man. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Take Me to Your Reader, discussing adapted science fiction at its best and worst. I'm Seth. I'm James. And I'm Colin. And this time we're going to be talking about The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which is a new film out in theaters right now. And uh, for this episode, we actually have the original screenwriter for The Last Voyage of the Demeter, Braggy Shute. So hi there. Hi, thank you for having me Welcome. on. Yeah, and this is your second time on because you joined us to talk about Samaritan before, but you mentioned this one, and so we kind of made a note, okay, we're going to have to circle back when that hits theaters. And I didn't even really know it was coming out, out until a couple, six weeks ago, something like that. Yeah. I noticed in, in when you say Demeter, um, but it seemed well, like- Well, I mispronounced it. I've realized that uh, the, the standard pronunciation seems to be Demeter. Okay. <laughs> but I, from, from the time when I first came up with the story, I always thought it was pronounced Demeter, and it's just stuck on my brain that way now. Gotcha. Okay. Well, <laughs> Colin will say that's the correct pronunciation then. <laughs> I am Mr. Canonicity still. <laughs> I guess we, we could um, just do a quick kind of re-intro to you, who you are, and uh, you know what people would know you from. I'm a screenwriter. Uh, I, I've done a um, number of uh, f- uh, film credits, uh, Season of the Witch, Escape Room, uh, Samaritan, uh, starring Sylvester Stallone, um, and Last Voyage of Demeter, and uh, Ninjago. So mostly, mostly, and, and Threshold, years and years and years ago. So mostly film stuff, but, you know, TV, uh, whatever comes along. I've done a little bit of video game work. I did some work on a Telltale game for, uh, for uh, Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead, some story room stuff here and there. Oh, cool. Cool. I've, I've played nice. The Walking Dead one. Yeah. So. <laughs> nice. Well, so the last time you were on our podcast, you mentioned you had a, a project coming up that you expected to be released soon, and that was Last Voyage of the Demeter. So uh, it's a Dracula adaptation? Uh, it's not an adaptation of the book. It's it's an adaptation of a chapter of the book. So if, if people go into it expecting to see an adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel, I think they'll be uh, disappointed because there's no John Harker, there's no Mina, you know, none of those characters. It takes one chapter right. from the book and enlarges it and expands it and I think by necessity adds elements to it because, you know, it's a six-page chapter. Right. So it takes a sliver <laughs> of the book and kind of explodes it. Wow. And where did you get the idea to do this? How, how long has this been cooking around? I think I wrote the first draft in 1998, possibly 1997. So it is, it's one of the very first scripts I ever wrote. Been a minute. <laughs> and yeah, it's been around a long time and it's come very close to getting made any number of times with different directors and different actors. Oh, really? Um, Interesting. I had, I had an idea when I first came out to Hollywood, I was working in a model shop and I, I wanted to write and direct. And I had this idea. I really wanted to write something like alien. Alien was one of my all time favorite movies and aliens. I remember I sort of every five years flip flop on which I like more, depending (laughs) on where I am in my sort of evolution as a, as a fan and a writer. And at, at that stage, uh, they were sort of neck and neck, but I but I really wanted to write something like Alien. And every every idea I came up with just it was it's very hard to write an alien monster movie and not step on Alien. It's 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 a juggernaut. It's like it's so uh, it's such an archetypal sort of story. So I kept trying to think, well, how do I do an alien type movie and not rip off Alien? Um, and then in the model shop, there was a very talented model maker who who brought his portfolio in to show me one day, and he's showing me all these pictures in his portfolio. And there was these great photos of this miniature ship with these tattered sails and they were all bloodstained, you know, sort of red <laughs> bloody sails. And, and I remember looking at it going, this is great. What is this ship? And he said, that's the Demeter. That's the ship that carried uh, Dracula from, you know, Varna to England. And I just suddenly, I just, I was like, wow, wait a second. That's how I can do my alien story. I'll just, instead of setting it in the future on a spaceship, I'll set it in the past on a boat. And, and do a version of Dracula that's, you know, a little different than um, most depictions of Dracula, where he's this sort of, you know, sexual predator. He's this very charismatic, very dangerous sort of sexual uh, force of nature. And I thought, if he's in a boat and he's picking these guys off, I mean, that, there's nothing sexual about that. He must be starving. He's hungry. He's famished. It, 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 all these ideas came into my head about doing a sort of more dangerous, primal creature 
uh, a version that would progress to the point where when the, the voyage ends, we would end up with maybe a recognizable Dracula that would, that would seg back into the larger mythology. But I thought this was a chance to explore this different version. And so I got very excited about it and I started writing this script. I remember uh, looking at that chapter. I think I even Xeroxed the pages of that chapter and I started highlighting all the little passages, seeing how I could hit all those benchmarks and, and, and have you know the captain writing in his journal and have the journals line up with the chapter. So it was a really interesting and exciting script to write. And um, yeah, and that was sort of, that's how the idea came to me. Wow, cool. that's cool. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> uh, I've got to imagine that the screenplay evolved over the years. Did you go back and rewrite it at various points, or or were other people brought in to do that? Oh, there, there were there were so many cooks in the kitchen. I did a number of drafts, and um, it was developed over years and years. I mean, this is you know twenty five years. All said, all when it's all said and done, it'll be close to twenty five years. So there were other writers that were brought in, big writers. I mean. Uh, James V. Hart, who wrote Bram Stoker's Dracula, did a draft, and mm-hmm. Robert Schwenke did a draft, oh, wow. and, and Stefan Rzewitzki did a draft, and uh, you know, there are probably three or four other writers in there that I that I'm that I don't that I'm not even aware of. But there were so many drafts done, and it's and it, I think what happened was the script sort of veered off from what it was. I remember reading the James V. Hart draft, and it was very different. <laughs> it, it was very different. It was, you know, at one point it became a story of a of a uh, traveling. Uh, carnival type worker who returns home to his little village and his family's been killed and he realizes they've been butchered by Dracula. And it was a, it was a revenge movie where suddenly he's going after this monster trying to avenge his wife and, and daughter. And he follows the creature onto the ship. There was another version where, um, I mean, just more, more versions than you can think of. And I'd be very curious to know how much money is, was against the project by the time it got made, but it could have been in the, you know, it could have been, who knows over 10 million maybe i don't know but a lot of drafts and i think what happened was that it had veered so far from from the original draft that i was ultimately brought back in and i sort of had to untangle it and restore it (laughs) sort of you know halfway back to where it was originally Mm. and um so then the draft became there were a lot of other ideas that crept into it at that point um and, and it was it was challenging because you know it when I'm writing it on my own, it's just me. I'm the final arbiter. I can decide exactly what goes in there and it's great. And I'm the, you know, the architect of the story. I mean, other than the fact that I'm drawing on, you know, Bram Stoker's source material, but it, it was just me cooking up these ideas and having a lot of fun with it. Once you get hired back, then you sort of have marching orders and then you've got to, you know, we like this element. We like that element. We want to go back closer to yours. And so it becomes a very tricky juggling act and you have to kind of, you have to, uh, you know, do your best to incorporate all those ideas. And, and some of them are great and some of them, were different than my initial instinct. So there's, that's part of the challenge of being a screenwriter. I always tell people if you can't, if you can't do that, cause it is challenging and sometimes difficult and painful and you know, you're better off being an author because you, you don't, I mean, maybe you have an editor, but basically you're the cook and um, you can write what you want. But as a screenwriter, I found that, um, you know, you have to kind of wrap your head around other ideas and, and try to, you know, do your best with them and bring them in. So that was a difficult, the rewrites were challenging and, um, and then, you know, after a while I turned in those rewrites and, uh, you know, sort of walked away from it. And I would hear every couple of years that some new director was attached and, you know, that it was getting close and some new studio was attached, you know, at one point David Slade was going to direct it and Marcus Nispel and, and, and then, um, Neil Marshall and, you know, a bunch of very talented filmmakers. And then it just, nobody could quite get it over the hill. And then, uh, just, I had sort of written it off as something that would never get made. And it would sort of pop up on these lists every year. People put out these lists of like, you know, the, you know, the 10, uh, 10, you know, big unproduced screenplays, you know, 10 famous unproduced projects, that kind of thing. And I would see it on these lists and it was just sort of painful because it just sort of cemented in my head that, yeah, it's never going to get made kind of a thing. <laughs> and then finally I, I found out that it was getting made in the, in the strangest way, but then it was sort of like, 25 years later and I was like, really? It was one of those matrix <laughs> moments where you're like, really? It's getting done? Wow. When, when you were originally, um, when you were originally working on the screenplay, how constrained, like how close were you keeping it to the source? You said you kind of went through and you outlined it. Did you always envision it as ending sort of exactly the way the chapter does? Yeah, I always wanted the ending the same way, but I, but I, but I also realized that I was going to have to cheat because I personally can't stand horror films where everyone 
dies. I mean, I know we're getting into spoiler mm-hmm. territory here, but I, I, when I, there was an ugly trend for a little while in horror where like you would, you would invest in these, you know, every horror film, I feel like you're investing in a story and, and part of the fun is to like see how they can survive when everyone else gets it, you know, but there's, but there's sort of this unspoken pact, or at least there used to be an unspoken pact that somebody's going to make it out alive. And you could, you could usually tell who the hero was and part of the fun would be seeing how they would avoid calamity. But then there was this sort of trend in horror films for a little while where nobody made it. And, and you had these sort of brutal film, like, brutal films like them or, or, or uh, you know, there were a couple uh, where they all died. And I remember, or like, you know, Eden Lake and stuff like that. And, 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 and I would just watch them and they, and Eden Lake is incredibly well done and brutal. So is them. Them is great, but it's, or the original Eels, you know, the Danish, I mean, they're really well done movies, but you watch it and you're just like, or funny games, you know, and you're just like, holy crap i'm like <laughs> I, I feel betrayed like nobody made it like I, I i want my two hours back nobody right this is you broke the rules like somebody's supposed to live here and um and so i felt like well with demeter no you know if you it's not a spoiler to say if you've read the book nobody makes it the ship arrived so i i, I racked my brain to think like well how can i cheat and have somebody live but also still have it line up with the book and so that led me to the idea that okay well what if there's a last minute substitution. Somebody gets on the crew and, you know, the ca- it's a bit of a cheat, but I was like, okay, the captain didn't update. He doesn't mention this person in the log because it's not their usual crew. He's just some, you know, rando guy. And um, that person has to leave the ship before we get to the end because clearly nobody's on the ship at the end who lives. So he has to somehow get off the ship. And I'm like, okay, I can, I, I can figure out a way to make this line up but still have – you know, my cake and eat it too and have a character who makes it. So that was the one big cheat was like, I'm going to have somebody get on the boat and the captain's not going to record his presence, but he'll be there and he'll just have to get off the boat somehow before the ship lands. But I wanted it to end in the original draft. It ended exactly as the book. There's a big black hound that jumps the rail and darts off across the beach. And all of that was in there. Um, you know, and the, and the journal entries lined up. I maybe went a little further in, in the book, the crew, figured out that there was something picking them off and there was a, a, a you know, a, a, there were a few glimpses of the creature and there were some scenes discussing the creature. And I think in the journal, in the captain's log chapter, they never quite figure out what it is. There's just, a, you know, a sort of vague sense that some evil has befallen them. So, it, it, you know, it was fudging, you know, certain things and taking it a little further in the script, but I don't know how you would have done it without doing that a bit because it would have been very, I think it would have been very irritating for an audience to go through, you know, two hours and and never have anyone figure out what's going on and never show the thing and never have them themselves, you know, any of that. So the book, I definitely had to take it a little further, but it definitely ended the same way. Nice. I do do remember thinking, I was wondering if anybody was actually going to survive knowing, you know, in the chapter, in the book, then nobody does. I was like, which one of these guys is going to survive? (laughs) Clemens seems like, seems like the right person, given what you were saying with the, uh, last minute switch and all that. I was like, okay, yeah. he, might, he might be there. Yeah. And he was the most sensible one anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, he's the POV character too, right? Right. Yeah. 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 I was thinking it was going to be Anna that survived. Mm. Cause she had the most experience with Dracula. She had the most sense. She's like, we need right. to get out of Dodge. If you're going to stay here and fight, I'll <laughs> not out. see you on the mainland. <laughs> mm. Although you were pleasantly surprised, right? Did the <laughs> The, not not pleasantly surprised. Well, <laughs> I, I was like I had, I admired Maybe that's the, the guts. wrong terminology. Yeah, I admired the guts of a movie to kill off a kid, right? I mean that's that's it's not Well yeah, that that was, that character was not in the original draft. That was that was one of those elements that came out of future out of later drafts and um he got woven into the story. Anna wasn't in the original draft either. I always saw it as more like more you know in some ways more the mold of like the thing where mm-hmm. they're all guys, they're all, cause there are, there's no mention of any women on board being found in the right. crates or any of that. Yeah. None of that is in the book. Right. So I did not have that in the original draft. It was, I was trying yeah. to keep it much more It was all just crates closed. of earth and silver sand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But you know, that, that was one of the notes that I was given was like, well, we'd like, you know, a, a woman in here. We can't just have the old guys. And, and then somehow uh, from one of the other drafts, the, the character of the kid became a, uh, you know, an element that intrigued the uh, producers and Mike and, and Brad. And so they wanted to preserve that. Um, so those things got added. And, and once the kid was in the mix, then I was like, okay, well, if, if we're going to make this work, what's something we can do that will shock people and surprise them. And, and then it became like, okay, well, I remember um, 
writing the scene, you know, where, where he, you know, where they're disposing of the body at sea of the child. And I remember writing that scene and trying to think, well, how do I make this scene, you know, shocking and, and, and do something with this that people aren't ready for. And that's, that's, you know, where that idea mm. came from. Yeah, it was effective. <laughs> it was not, not much, not initially my instinct to have a kid in there okay. at all. The first draft yeah. did not. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think the like the like the sailor super, superstitions about having a woman aboard and that right. kind of stuff like it it does lend it to works. the yeah. the kind of sort of like you mentioned the thing where the, getting mm-hmm. the people fighting each other just a little bit kind of helps move it along as well. But yeah, there's you can definitely yeah. kind of see some common DNA between something like Alien or or, or the Thing, similar kind of situations, and those that's those are all right up our alleys, which is cool. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 I, I liked the shadowy buildup to to yeah. Dracula. <laughs> I wanted to talk. I mean, I I know that you have a producer credit on this, but you weren't on set. Um, did you? Were you consulted about any of the creature design? How how much of the Dracula did you describe in your screenplay? Um, I, I think there was some mention of wings in this. I remember uh, describing the creature in, in the script. Um, I remember envisioning it, and there was a moment that I that I wrote in the script where uh, Clemens comes face to face with the creature finally, and and it was in the middle of the storm at the end, and this thing was supposed to rise in front of him and open its wings like some malevolent angel of darkness. Mm-hmm. You know, I described it in a, in a sort of flowery way, and the, the wings unfurling in front of him right as the crack with lightning. And so I definitely had the idea of wings in my head, but I, I did not. The design process of the creature um, was all, you know, uh, Andre and the and the um, creature people who, who, you know, I mean, maybe they took their cue from of, of the wings from mm-hmm. the script, but I, I didn't. There, there were, I didn't, you know, come up with anything beyond that. It was just, it, it, I know the, the way I tried to describe it in the script was a much more animalistic Dracula than um, the traditional depiction of, uh, you know, sort of European, you know, sophisticated yeah. gentleman kind of, it, none of that was in there. It was always sort of a creature. Yeah, it reminded me, the facial characteristics reminded me of the, the old Nosferatu. With the with the very prominent fangs in the front um, and the and the long fingers yes. and uh, and so I thought I thought that was a nice touch and I yeah I had written down yeah. like um, observations in in watching the movie I'm like Dracula starts off kind of weak and I don't know if that's from his travels you know to to get even onto the boat and that kind of stuff and but that's also and you can correct me if I'm wrong like how do you make it not just a complete blowout. <laughs> you know, Dra- Dra- Dracula Nine <laughs> Crew Zero, right? Um, and you start off with him being, you know, not at full power. Yeah, yeah. I think the idea was just um, that he's in a very weakened state from his travels, and that he's 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 malnourished and and you know very um, debilitated, and 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 so he, in some ways, in my mind, that's you know it was, it was a fun idea because you know they say they say that the cornered animal is the most dangerous, mm-hmm. and so you have this very desperate, weak creature that the first couple times that he attacks somebody, he has to be careful not to be caught and not to be seen. And he's, you know, and, 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 and as he becomes, as he's gets more and more sustenance, he becomes more and more powerful. Um, it, it was great because you, you know, you, you look for ways to build the stakes as a writer and you look for ways for things to get creepier and more terrifying. So, you know, my favorite movies are monster movies from when I was a kid. I remember the, the movies that affected me the most were the creature films, alien predator, the thing aliens. And I, I was always so impressed with, you know, Cameron's aliens and, the, and, and I've read his scripts so many times. And I remember just thinking how incredible it was that as the film went on, you know, he managed to find a way to throw something at you that was more terrifying than the alien creatures that Ripley's been fighting the whole movie. And so when you reach the third act and she goes down into the bowels of the, you know, processing station to try to save Newt, she stumbles into the lair of the queen. And it was just like, this, <laughs> yeah. holy shit. Moment. You're just like, oh my me? like, this wasn't scary enough, bad enough. Now we got to meet the queen. Yeah. Like, it's just horrible. So I remember thinking like, well, the stakes here could be that in some ways it's weakest in the beginning and it gets more and more powerful. And by the end, they have no chance. This thing is like just, you know, by the end when it rises in front of Clemens, it was going to be this, you know, powerful, fully fed, very, you know, that they, they, they don't have a hope. And so the only way that to, for him to survive by that point, the victory was in escape. It was in thwarting the fate that everyone else aboard is subjected to. Yeah. I've been surprised as I talk to people about the movie and the adaptation 
how few people know the whole story of Dracula. Like most people think that Dracula is a story that happened in Transylvania. They don't know that he went to London, uh, you know, because it's a richer yeah. hunting ground. And when they asked me to describe, well, so what is this movie about? And I said, well, Dracula needs to get to London. He's taking a ship and he's ordered the buffet. So. <laughs> it's his snacks for the flight. It's his snacks for yeah. the flight. Yeah. Well, I thought it was fun that the the name of the ship Demeter is that's the goddess of the harvest in in Greek mythology, and uh, it's clearly a harvest yeah. for Dracula. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. No, I mean the, the the just the the idea of him, you know, traveling to London and of telling the story of his journey there. It, it was it was just interesting because in my mind when he gets there it it was sort of like you know his story is going to continue because he has to fulfill the rest of the mythology from the book and so then the, the challenge became well how do you weave some kind of a you know how do you bring some kind of closure to it and i remember really thinking about and analyzing other movies and looking for examples where you know the character the bad character the villain the monster gets away and there aren't a lot there are a few and they're always handled in such a clever way. In particular, I always remember the ending of silence, of the lambs mm-hmm. where Clarice, you know, her victory is that she survives and rescues this person. And, and, you know, but Hannibal Lecter escapes mm-hmm. and that's all the scene at the end. It always sticks with you. At least with me, I always remember thinking how well written the ending was when, you know, he calls her <laughs> and uh, they have this final little confrontation yeah. between yeah. the two of them. And he sees the, you know, the jailer, his old jailer walking off into the crowd. And he says, I have to go, Clarice. I'm having an old friend yes. for dinner. And he hangs up the phone. <laughs> yeah. When I saw it, when I, when I realized that and really studied that and read that scene, I was like, that kind of clicked. And I was like, it was one of those little, you know, sort of light bulb moments where I was like, okay, that's that some our version has to be something like that where Dracula escapes he's going to go on to fulfill the rest of the journey but Clemens has gotten away and there has to be some little moment where um you know Clemens connects his storyline connects with the greater mythology of the story and and so there was this epilogue scene in the first draft there was an epilogue scene where he goes into a pub and um he's just getting drunk because nobody believes him and he's this crazy guy and he's trying to tell them and nobody's listening and so he's just frustrated and he's getting drunk and there was a scene uh, i had written a scene where um a, a gentleman comes walking in and comes you know up to his table and uh just sits down and and he's looking at the stranger in front of him and he says you know i, want, I don't want company i'm drinking you know leave me alone kind of a moment and the stranger says i understand you have come a long way and have a remarkable story to tell Clemens says, why would you listen to me? Nobody else is listening to me. You know, who, who the hell are you? And he goes, um, I'm here because I believe you. I'm, you know, it was this moment where he realizes he's not sure who he's talking to, but this person, there's something about this guy that gets his attention. And so the person takes off his hat and puts it on the table. Clemens says, you know, who are you? And as he takes off his hat, he puts it on the table and he says, my name is Van Helsing. Mm. Oh. And so the, the idea was that he's going to meet Van Helsing. Oh, that'd be cool. And... <laughs> And it was this sort of moment where where um, his destiny is merging with the with the story, and he was going to become one of the guys who joins Van Helsing for the hunt. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a wonderful. I thought it was a really fun scene, and I was very excited about it. And I know um, Brad Fisher and Mike Medavoy, when they read it, they they loved it and they got very excited. But there was a concern that Van Helsing was a very obscure name, and that he people, unless they're very familiar with Dracula, the name is meaningless. And so a lot of people would read the script and sort of come at us with this question of like, what was that scene about at the end? Who was that guy? Like, why did it end? Why was the last line of the script? My name is Van Helsing. And they were like, who's Van Helsing? And so at that point I was like, all right, you can't win. You know, it can't be Van Helsing. And so then Zach, when when Zach Oakwitz came on and did this, when I saw his draft, I saw that scene was gone and it was a little painful, but he had sort of replaced it with a very, with a similar scene, but where, you know, if you've seen the movie, it's Dracula himself. And so it felt in some ways, I, I was okay with it and happy with it because in some ways it felt like it was closer to the Hannibal Lecter moment where the villain and the mm-hmm. hero brush you know, sleeves and Dracula goes off into the crowd and Clemens is left behind. And it was this sort of interesting moment where it was like, you've escaped me, but there's a grudging respect there and you know, I, I'm letting you go. And, and it was sort of an interesting moment. And I remember um, much as it pained me to see the Van Helsing scene go away, I appreciated this scene too. And I realized, okay, this is, in some ways, there's more recognition there with Dracula. And so it was it was sort of an interesting mm. choice. But there were a lot of changes like that where things would change, but not change. But, they were, you know, they would grow or, you know. Yeah. 
I, I like that the movie ends in such a way that I can be, we were walking out of the theater yesterday <laughs> right. and, and I said, in my head canon for this, Clemens is dead five minutes after the end of this movie because he goes chasing after him. <laughs> yeah. um, but you could also take it a different direction where it's like, okay, maybe, maybe we go our separate ways at this point. Yeah. Or, or maybe, you know, I mean, my brain always sort of thinks, you know, cause I, a lot of times you write a script and you never intend there to be a sequel. And then you inevitably, at some point you get that call of like, Hey, Sony wants to do escape room too. You got ideas. Mm-hmm. And so then you, you know, or, you know, you, you, you have to try to figure it out. And so I, in my back of my brain, I, you know, I never imagined there, you know, would be a sequel to certain films, but I, it's come up at least three or four times where I've had to write a sequel to something that I didn't expect there ever intend there to be a mm. sequel. So your brain always, you know, thinks, and nobody's asked anything about Demeter, but, but you know, there, there, who knows, there could be a version where Clemens does meet up with Van Helsing and becomes one of the group of people that pursues and hunts and, and, and ultimately, you know, kills. If I remember correctly from the book, it actually isn't, I don't believe it's Van Helsing who, who finally kills Dracula. I think it's one of his men. It's yeah, so one of, one of know, the suitors stabs him. I know, but um, these guys haven't read the book. Yeah. Yet. yeah. Oh, did you finish it? No, okay. I only read enough book to try and find. Like I didn't know which chapter it was in, so I started reading from the beginning. When I got to chapter seven, I'm like, okay, I just read. Two beautiful chapters of Victorian relationship romance. <laughs> <laughs> I need something else now, please. And it was yeah. perfect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know. We'll, we'll get back to you in a couple months. We, we, we'll probably do Dracula for uh, Halloween this year just because we've never done it. And it'd be fun. And there's so many adaptations to choose from. Oh, yeah. So, you know, when it's when you're making science fiction, you kind of get to invent your own universe. But because you went back into, you know, our past history, what kind of research did you do to try and, and flesh out the story more than the, the five pages in the book? So um, some of it I'd already had in my brain because as a kid, I spent a lot of time on boats. My dad had a sailboat and we crossed the Indian Ocean when I was a very young child. So I knew oh, the wow. feel of boats and I knew the sort of sense of isolation and the solitude and, and, and the weird feelings of not being able to see land. And, and that atmosphere was in my, my brain. And, and I remember, um, you know, I remember, and I'm very familiar with the parts of the boat, port, starboard, you know, the bow, aft, various, you know, the, 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 the terms and even some of the rigging and stuff. I remember doing sailing camp as a kid and stuff. And my family lives in the East coast and we have boats. And so a lot of that was, was thankfully in my head, but, but it's a very different thing. You know, when you're talking about a 1897 schooner, it's, <laughs> so I had to educate myself on, on the boats. I had to look up old, uh, you know, ships and I had to, I remember reaching out to, um, so I have here an old folder of, of research wow. Oh, wow. notes from when I first wrote this trip. Wow. And it's, um, you know, cool. American sailing ships. And it's old, it's old plans that I that I had to get from a museum. Oh you know, it was like plans awesome. of the boats and stuff. And and this is the wake of the coasters. You know, old maritime stuff. So I did a lot of research on that. Then there was you know the map, pulling up the chart and seeing you know what would be the path that they would mm-hmm. take. Here are here's a little sketch that I did. You know, with my dad's help. You know, talking about the the mizzen mast, the main mast. You know, different parts of the. Both. This was a, a letter from the Mariner's Museum. Oh my gosh! <laughs> from That's uh, awesome. dated from nineteen March twentieth, nineteen ninety eight. Dear Mister Shoot, thank you for your inquiry to the Mariner's Museum Research Library and Archives. After what proved to be a most interesting research project for me, I am pleased to forward you some information concerning schooners of the nineteenth century. <laughs> That's fantastic! Oh my gosh! So there was a lot of fun research that went into it. And I think when you're really passionate about the story, you know, the, the way the way I was about Demeter, you get a little obsessed. You know, you start to, I mean, look, here's pictures of, of Whitby, of actual Whitby mm. Harbor, you know. Nice. So you see these pictures and you see the lighthouse and you're like, boom, there's a scene. You know, we're going to use that or I'm going to use that. Here was sailing ships from old photographs, you know, all these articles that the schooner, the Bertha Downs, you know, all this stuff. But a big part of the research, though, was not even um, – it wasn't even the ship stuff. It was the language and the way characters talk. And so for that, I ended up having to read a bunch of, uh, of books from that period you know, and scripts that were written in that period. I mean here's a little photocopy I made from some book that showed the, the, the cargo hatch where they, you know, they would put the cargo. And so it was um, researching – you know, the language and the maps and, and the map and, and figuring out what their course would have been and what landmarks they would have passed. And even the way that the crew, uh, the way that 
crews talk to each other. Now, obviously, I have, I have no idea how they really would talk, but there's a lot of great writing and, and, and stories and other scripts and things that were written at, at that time. So I would dig up old old screenplays of like, you know, Captain's Courageous or The Mutiny on the Bounty. And I would read the dialogue and I would try to really channel the, the voices of these crew. And I remember there was one script that was so well written. I don't even remember what script it was, but it was some old sailing uh, thing. And the, and the first mate on it, you know, the, the sailors were just they had the most colorful like way you know, of writing dialogue where he was constantly angry and berating the crew and calling them names and stuff. And so I remember when I wrote the first draft with, with uh, Wojciech as the first mate, in my version, he was much more of an angry, you know, uh, a pit bull. He was very protective of his stature in the, on the crew and very, and he saw Clemens as a threat because Clemens was a man of books and learnings, much like the captain. And he was, and Wojciech was not, he was a, and he prided himself on the fact that he, you know, didn't know how to read, but, but, you know, he knew boats and he knew, so he took it very personally when Clemens would sort of try to join the crew and, you know, and so he was very angry. And so, and, and I had dialogue where he would berate the crew and, you know, shout at them and stuff. And when, as they're leaving Harbor, you know, I remember writing, uh, in the first draft, I wrote his dialogue. It wasn't terribly interesting. And then when I, when I really dialed in his character, I went back through the script and I rewrote all of Wojciech's dialogue. So that instead of just saying, you know, raise the sail, you know, uh, 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 raise the anchor, you know, get, you know, let's get out of here. You know, I mean, it was terrible dialogue. But then when I rewrote it, it became much more authentic in my mind. And it was like, he's, he's, you know, shouting at the crew going, you know, hoist the anchor, hole in those lines. You, 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 you cockroaches, you know, you move, you know, you, you're like laggards, you know, he's shouting at them. And he's going, this shit handles like a fat pig in this weight. You know, do, do you need me to tell you everything? You know, raise the sail. And he's, and he's you know, shouting at them and he's like commanding them. And it became much more interesting. And then I realized like, yeah, he's, He's just a character who's very gruff and 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 insulting to them, and and you know he had um, an aversion. He he couldn't accept anything supernatural. In my earlier draft, he he had a real hard time with the crew freaking out about something on board, and he would get very angry at their murmuring and their whispering and their panic, and you know it would irritate him. And he was sort of a man of action, and he. So it was, I had a lot of fun writing his dialogue and some of that got stripped away. He became a very different character. He's a much, uh, in Zach's version of the script, he's a much, you know, he, he's not as much of a pit bull. He's a much more gentle, um, you know, David Dasmalchen did a fantastic job playing him, I think, but he's a much more, um, sort of soft spoken, uh, less, less temperamental character than in my draft. He had quite a temper, he had quite a temper and he and Clemens would, 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 would argue and, and they would butt heads and uh, it was a bit of a, a, a sort of a Captain Bly, um, uh, Chris, Fletcher Christian kind of a relationship in the first mm. draft that they that they were just, you know, did not like each other. We're not getting all this oil and vinegar. <laughs> That's very cool. Uh, makes sense to actually talk a little bit about the about the cast because, um, yeah, uh, David Dusmelchian is, is fantastic. Uh, Corey Hawkins is great as Clemens. I, I – uh, I thought he he did a nice job with the accent, incredible job with that. And then uh, uh, Asling Franchosi, I think, is the name uh, for Anna, and I thought she was great as well. And Liam Cunningham, Liam Cunningham. Seemed, like he's yeah. been around a long time. Uh, he's great as <laughs> the like captain. Him. So yeah, yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. The score in the movie was terrific too. It's Barry, Barry McCreary. I thought it was great. So yeah, I, I love scores, and I'm a big music fan, and so I'm I'm very excited to. I haven't even had the chance to really listen to the score alone yet, but I'm I'm very curious to. Um, I thought we were lucky on Escape Room. We had a fantastic uh, score by Brian Tyler, and it's full of sort of chimes and ticking clocks, and it was you know perfect for the movie. And Barry McCreary, uh, I believe he does the, the um, not Highlander. What's the TV series that uh, that he scored? That's fam- is it, it's not it's not Highlander. It's something like Galactica, that. isn't it? Yeah, he did Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar Galactica and did you- he do Outlander as well? Yes. Yeah, he did. At- yeah, Outlander. Outlander. Okay. Yeah, the, the score will be fun to listen to and digest. I know at one point they had. Um, Sam, uh, Danny Elfman oh, wow. was considering scoring oh, wow. it. Yeah, James Newton Howard I think, was going to score it, and then and then and then for whatever reason scheduling or budget I don't know, but f- then finally they they got uh, Bear McCreary. Mm. My my favorite of uh, of his is uh, Human Target. It was a short lived show, but the first the first <laughs> season score was just terrific. I think he also did that 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 the score for um, Ten Cloverfield Lane, which I remember being very mm. effective and very cool and creepy. I like that movie. I think I'm about run out of questions. You got additional stuff, and I know you you wanted to uh, you know 
we're in the middle of a writer's strike, right? And so right. certainly if we want to talk about that, that, um, you know, just, just to mention this wasn't written during the strike, There's no scabbing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it was written along. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 1998, 1999. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, this is kind of a trivial thing. So we watched it literally last night, less than 24 hours ago. And you had mentioned that um, it was filmed in Malta and in Germany. And so you weren't able to be on set. When when did you first get to see the movie? Was there like a, a, a secret premiere that everyone involved gets to watch? Or how does that work? No, I, I mean, thankfully, it was a really fun um Fun story, but I, we I got my I got invited um, to go to view a, a, a print of it at Amblin. Oh, and neat. I mean Spielberg is is is, is like you know a, mm-hmm. a hero. So and I've had general meetings there over the years. I've never met Stephen myself. I hope to someday. But um, we I got a call that said, "Hey, do you want to go see your movie? You know, you should be you should you should go see it. That Amblin is going to reach out and they're going to have you in." So I. I told my wife, I'm like, hey, do you want to go see Demeter? They're, Amblin's going to give us a, a screening. And I thought it was going to be a screening with a bunch of people. And it was us. It was just oh, us. Oh, wow. I think there was one other person. <laughs> in the back of the, and there was an agent, somebody with one of the actors was there. But we, we, went, we drove onto Universal and, you know, there's a pass waiting for me. And we get to Amblin and they escort us down to this screening room. I don't even know existed. It's like down <laughs> below Amblin. But it's this beautiful it's old like, Art Deco little screening room. And, you know, with these huge seats and, and on the left, there's like a like little popcorn concession stand thing, but there's nobody behind the counter. And so I'm like, I'm like, how does that work? And the woman's like, oh, just take whatever you just go back there, help yourself. So I'll be like, <laughs> back there behind the counter, like, and, you know, and all this stuff. And then we sit down and, uh, and uh, they're, they're, the theater darkens and it starts to play. And I'm so familiar with the script that I, I wish I could say that I could watch it in a pen enjoy it the same way uh, or not enjoy it, you know, if you don't like the movie. But the, the, when you guys watch it or a person watches a movie or I watch a movie I haven't written, it's a very different experience than when I watch a movie I have written. Sure. Yeah. Um, because I've visualized every part of it and the whole story. So for me, I, I can't, I can never see it that way. And it, it always bums me out a bit, but I can never watch it that way. You know, when I see a, a movie I haven't written for the first time, it's a whole different experience <laughs> and it's just wonderful, you know. And I think that's part of the price you pay. You know, it's, I love what I do, but you can't see it. You can't, you know, you, you see it when you write it. You discover it when you right. write it. And so when I watch the movie, I, I appreciate the cinematography and the performances and the score. And I and there's certain moments that I'll watch that I'll smile and I'll be like, oh, that's very close to what I pictured, you know, or that's exactly how I pictured it. And then there's other things that I'm like, huh, that's not the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> it's not supposed to be that way. That's, that's my life. Yeah, this, uh, this is what Colin does every time he watches a movie based on a book. <laughs> it's that all the time. So I spent half the movie watching the movie and half the movie watching my wife trying to see, like, does, you know, is she getting it? And she's grabbing my arm. And, and so she was like, she's not a horror person at all. And so she kept, like, looking away and grabbing my arm. And, and I'm like, all right getting spooked huh? like this is <laughs> when the one dude burns up that was that was very effective that was yeah. Uh, oh yeah that was quite uh Good. quite nasty i liked the, it the, the first guy uh, agreer yeah i was surprised that it, it, it was as sort of ferocious as it was i i didn't expect in my mind i think i was editing out some of the more graphic bits when mm-hmm. i was writing it and sort of cutting away you know like i i i uh you know i i, I didn't picture it quite as brutal as Andre did. And so I was sort of surprised at, at how unflinching it, like so there's some moments of violence yeah. where like yeah. he just sh- goes for it, shows like it no to you. Part. And I was a little like, Whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that was more than I thought. But other than that, a lot of it, I totally felt like I recognized and, you know, a lot of it, he's envisioning it in his own process and he just came up with a different image for it. So I remember with season of the witch, especially cause I wasn't terribly happy with how season of the witch turned out. And I remember watching, that was a script that I was very proud of. And it, you know, it won the, the nickel fellowship and I felt very good about it. And I thought, Oh, people like this script. It got me a lot of work around town for years. When I saw the movie, I was like, every scene was different than I pictured. Every scene was like, <laughs> Oh no, you know, it didn't, it was supposed to feel like, uh, you know, it was supposed to feel like, uh, you know, like, like gritty and hard. And I pictured nights in, in pouring rain on horses looking like just not very handsome or clean or anything. It was supposed to be a brutal, like I wanted to feel like a Kurosawa film. If he had done a medieval nights movie, you know, or, or Ingmar Bergman, seven, you know, and it, it was very different. And I remember thinking like, okay, you, you pictured it one way. The director had a totally different vision and you know, that's going to happen when you, when he's making a million choices 
So with Demeter, I, I, I saw a lot of it and I was like, this is, this looks very kind of like what I pictured. It, it was closer, yeah, which cool. was interesting. I'd read online that they actually built a boat to film on for the most of the outside scenes and the top scenes. I saw pictures. Andre was very cool about taking pictures and sending them to me because I couldn't be there. And so he would take all these pictures. So I saw it coming, getting built slowly. And I remember seeing the bulwarks and the you know ribs as they're getting ready to build it. It looked like they were actually building it like it could be functional. I don't know if it would, wow. would you know, water or not or seaworthy or not. But yeah, they built it. Wow. And so, and the other thing is if, if on Titanic, they built half the ship, right, to save money. I don't know if you heard this story or not, but they built half the ship and then they printed all the signage. The, the normal way, and then they printed it in reverse so that if they were filming scenes that were on the left side of the ship, which didn't exist, they would just film it on the right side of the ship but put on the reversed uh, signage, and then in post they would flip the image, and so it would come out the right way, and it would look like they were on the left side of the ship, but they couldn't, you know, they didn't have the assistant expensive movie that they only built half the mm. ship. And so I thought, Demeter, oh, they're going to do the same thing. They probably only need half, but they'll. And, you know, there, there's not much signage back then. It's not like they're walking right. around with labels of their names and stuff. So yeah. Right. <laughs> it's been one night since yeah. our last incident. <laughs> <laughs> so your your producer credit, credit hasn't been receiving that boat or anything impressive like that. No. No. Don't get the cute boat. <laughs> Bummer. I hope to get to the point, to the point some, at some point where I can, you know – there's always these fun props that come out of movies, you know, and, I, oh, and, I, and I'm a big, cause I started out in a model shop making these things and, you know, the guys uh, would sort of trade bootleg molds of various things, you know, and they would say, Hey, you know, you, I heard you worked on Raiders, you know, I heard you got a mold of the idol, you know, I'll trade you uh, the, the, uh, uh, you know, the predators, you know, rocket launcher for, you know, the, the predators laser mount oh, wow. thing for the idol. And so there were always model shop guys who were trading these things and swapping oh, them out. Cool. I remember a roommate of mine, uh, who'd been a model maker for years. I was just hanging out when I was living with him and I'm just hanging out in his living room, we're watching TV. And I start to look at his coffee table. It's this glass sheet and it says something weird holding it up. And I'm like, I'm like, George, what the hell is this? And he goes, oh, those are the reactor rods from uh, Total Recall from the end when they melt the ice. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa. Nice. Like, that's your coffee table. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So like Dracula's cane with the wolf head or the, the seal on the top of the boxes or the, oh, the yeah. telescope. I, or, I'd hold yeah. out for the sheep with the torn out neck. You know, that, <laughs> it's morbid, but it would make a nice pillow. <laughs> I hope at some point to, to be able to like pilfer props from one of my movies, but so far, sadly, no. I, I tried very hard to get a box, one of the puzzle boxes from Escape Room, but they were all, they went to, you know, I think Neil Moritz has one and Adam Robitel, the director, has one. I didn't get lucky oh. enough. Mm. Someday. This, the scene where Anna hops onto the, the, uh, the piece of ship and literally kind of sails off into the sunrise reminded me of the scene from Midnight Mass where the person has decided I can't help who I'm going to become, but I'm not going to hurt anybody else. Is, was that an inspiration or was that a parallel thing or? Um, I don't, I don't, I have not seen midnight mass. So I don't mm. know. Um, I know Anna was a later addition to, she was an addition from, I think, I don't know. It was Robert Schwenke or Stefan Rizwitzki. Somebody created the Anna character and it wasn't me. I, I resisted Anna. I did not want her on the boat. To me, we were straying too far from the source material. If they had found a girl on the boat, that would be in the log. I mean, the captain would have written. That's a pretty big thing not to, you know, to omit. Yeah. So I didn't see how we could work her in. So I, I embraced that element grudgingly, and I and I worked her into the script. And I remember, um, I remember thinking like, okay, well, if we're gonna have her be a part of it, then let's have her be a tragic character, and she's not gonna live. You know, she's gonna get bitten, and she's gonna go up in flames, and. You know, it's um, it, you know they'll get he'll he'll think he's saved her and they'll get off the ship and he will have saved her in a sense he'll have saved her from a terrible mm -hmm. death, but he will not have saved her saved her she's still gonna be you know and so then it became this this scene where um, as they're clinging to the mast you know she she tells him you know uh, you know I'm not gonna make it you know he's bitten me and he, and Clement says no 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 we'll get you to shore we'll fix it we'll fix it and she says no you can't it's too late you know and she wants to die on her own terms and in the version that I did, she sort of peels his hands off hers and, you know, like in a let me go kind of oh. moment and she sinks into the, into the ocean. She doesn't burn up. She just sinks down as she's changing. And so she dies human, mm. which is her mm. way out. And, um, it was a very dark, grim kind of moment. 
and I don't think it's any lighter, you know, <laughs> what, they, what they what they finally did. It's um, it's different. Again, all these things evolved o- over the years. So <laughs> I don't know. That was a Zach. Uh, Zach rewrote her death so that the, you know what you described. That's that's Zach's ending, the, the bursting into flames. It could have also come. I have no idea if this is true or not, but Guillermo del Toro was, I guess, going to do Demeter. It blows my mind that he that he oh, almost wow. did. Ripped the mind. Apparently, he was going to do it, and then his schedule it became impossible, and he he went off to do Nightmare Alley. Hmm. Is not am I getting the title right? Nightmare Alley. Yeah, that was that was uh, 21, 21. So he went off to do that, and um, he suggested Andre Overdahl to take over because they were, you know, Andre's. Uh, I don't know if protege is the right word, but he and Guillermo have worked together and they have a relationship together and a lot of mutual respect between them. And there were scary stories to tell in the dark, which there was, you know, <laughs> Guillermo. I think Guillermo produced. And so he suggested Andre for Demeter, and so then Andre came on board, and they had a lot of discussions, and I guess you know, really talked about the story a lot. And then Andre went off to do it with Guillermo's blessing and Guillermo went off, you know, to, to, to do, to, you know, do his own projects. But for a hot minute there, Guillermo was going to do it. And the reason I mentioned is because I believe in one of the Blade movies in Blade 2, the one that Guillermo directed, there's a scene, if I remember correctly, where Blade has fallen in love with the vampire girl, I forget her character name, but he's trying to save her, but he can't. And she, He's holding her in his lap and she, her last wish is that she wants to see the sun come up. And Blade is like, it's going to kill you. You know, whatever he says in his sort of Blade voice, you're not going to make it. And she's like, I, you know, I want to see it. And so he's holding her in his lap and the sun comes up and she sort of like turns to ash. And it's, you know, a very sort of tragic, beautiful Guillermo moment. And I, and I wondered whether this scene in its current iteration in Demeter somehow evolved from that or whether there was a discussion, whether that was one of the things they talked about with Andre. I have no idea. I was not there for any of those discussions but it could have been and you've had some pretty cool shout outs on social media from some more well-known horror people about demeter oh you're talking about stephen king i was yeah i follow stephen (laughs) king on on twitter and i was i was blown away and then you retweeted that and then you retweeted the guillermo del toro compliment and uh that's just so cool yeah Yeah. one was was wonderful i i uh i gotta admit he i did a a tv series many 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 years ago called threshold and king watched it and did not like oh. it. And I remember he, he, he made a comment about how he, how he thought Threshold was sort of, you know, wasn't his cup of tea, which is fine. He's, you know, he's, he's Stephen King. He can say whatever the hell he wants, but <laughs> right? he's earned the right to yeah. comment. But it was, it hurt. I was like, oh no, Stephen King doesn't like Threshold. And it's still, you know, 10 years later, 15 <laughs> years later, whatever it is, I'm, I still remember that. So I, I definitely really enjoyed seeing his tweet on this because I was like, like something you might find. <laughs> yeah, I think the quote was, uh, it's a throat rip in good time. Excellent. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Yeah. yeah that felt good. But it's tough. I mean, you put yourself out there and I don't want to get into, the, in, you know, I don't want to go off on this tangent because I don't want to get morbid, but it's hard. It's very hard. You put yourself out there, you do your best, you write it and, and, you know, people will like it or they won't. Or some people will like it and other people, and it's the same movie, but some people will like it and others won't. And I remember, at a certain point, I, I, I have to just turn away from the reviews and just, you know, you, know you, you just, obviously, I'd like everybody to like it, but, you know, it's it's a very it's a very particular kind of thing. It's a period piece movie. It's a vampire movie. It's a, a bloody movie. It's, you know, there's supposed to be ele- elements that are horrifying. Yeah. Um, and you can't, you can't uh, change what people bring to the movie with them in terms of expectations, too, because if they're coming in looking for a full Dracula movie... This is quite different. No, and everybody has a different idea of what Dracula is. Mm-hmm. Some people might see this version and say, well, that's not Dracula. It's like it's some, you know, that's more like the alien mm-hmm. or other people, you know, they might embrace it and go, oh, well, in, in the context of this story, that works. He's famished. He's malnourished. He's hungry. He's, he's been reduced to a very primal state. Who knows? I know as a screenwriter, you have even less control over how it turns out because you turn your, your script in and then the director takes over and the director has to envision the entire world and has to make a million decisions and choices. And sometimes they ask you, which is great. I remember on escape room, there were some moments where Adam would, uh, Adam Robitel would ask me, you know, like, so what is this moment? Or on a, on season of the witch, I remember having a conversation with Ron Perlman at one point, there's a scene in season of the witch where his character Felson is, um, riding up a hill. It's there. It's in the third act. They're coming up a hill together on horses and they've lost half their group. I think it's just down to like three of them at this point, the witch has killed everyone else. And Felsen has been wounded and injured and 
but nobody's quite aware of the extent of his injuries. And they're coming up this hill and Felsen uh, says to uh, LaVey, the hero, the Nicolas Cage character, he says, you know, when this is done, I want to take you back to the place where I was born. I want to show you the town. It's beautiful. There's trees and a lake, you know, and you and I will go fishing together. You know, and it's this sort of weird little conversation. And I remember Ron, Ron Perlman pulled me aside on set and he's like, hey, let me ask you about this monologue that, that, that this character, you know, like, he's like, what is this moment about in your mind? And it felt really good for him to ask because I thought, you know, I, I've thought about it and I had an answer. And I said, well, I think his injuries are way worse than, than, than anyone knows. And this is a, you know, like a come to Jesus kind of moment that, you know, he's, he's daydreaming about something that's never going to happen. He's, he's not going to make it, you know, but he's not ready to admit that. And so he's, 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 he's clinging to the idea that he's going to be okay. And he's sharing this, you know, it's, it's like those war movie scenes where somebody's saying, Hey, when we get out of here, we're going to go, I'm going to buy you a drink at this pub, you know, and, <laughs> and you just know that character's going to die and he knows it, but there's something beautiful in them daydreaming about the scene. So anyway, long story short, Ron is asking me about this scene and I'm trying to explain it to him and he starts smiling and he goes, I figured it, it's, 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 a, or he, he used the term. He said, it's, it's, it's like, I'm having like a come to Jesus moment. Like, I know I'm not going to make it, but I'm nice. And I'm like, yes, exactly. I'm like, how did you, how did you get that? And he goes, that's my job. I got to figure out the context for things as an actor. You're always trying to figure out, you know, that's what they pay me to do. But I wanted to ask you because I wanted to make sure, you know, you wrote it and I wanted to see if this was the thing. And I'm like, yes, I think your injuries are way, way worse and you're fucked up and you know, you're not going to make it. And you're talking to him and you're sort of like, you know, having this moment and so it was it was just so interesting to hear him say it and and he and he was sort of doing his homework and figuring out a moment and figuring out how to make it work so i don't know it's i think directors i I don't know i mean obviously i'm a writer so i'm speaking from a writer's perspective but i think directors if they included writers a little more and asked them you know they won't always have an answer like the director may have a better answer you know if it's ridley scott or james cameron they they don't have to ask anyone for help but you know i think there's, there's there's interesting things you know that that we've lived with the story and we've invented it. And so we're forced to sort of think about what each moment is and where it comes from and where certain lines come from and stuff. And so I, I always find it very interesting when directors ask, and I appreciate that because it's a chance to discuss it. And I may find out that I don't have a good answer, you know, or, or if they ask about a moment, they don't understand then maybe that's an indication that I didn't come up with enough to explain this moment, or I didn't come up with, you know, so it's, 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 it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's very cool talking to you and getting all these insights about, about the life of a screenwriter. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. Sure. I mean, we've kind of talked about the same thing between the director and the editor because, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. the editor has this whole different idea and things get changed around. Sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes the director and editor are really tightly knit together. Other times the studio comes in and tells the editor, do this because right. I'm paying you. And right. then it shows up as an extra on a DVD yeah. and you wonder like, why isn't that <laughs> moment in the movie? Because that would make <laughs> so much sense. And it's not. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of. I mean, apparently the first cut of Demeter was like close to three hours long. Wow. Whoa. And they had to, they had to cut a ton of stuff out. Wow. There's a whole thing in the book which we had preserved in the script where the Demeter, their Demeter, sorry, goes through the English Channel. They're supposed to land, and they go into hiding because they're being picked off, and they hunker down in the ship. And their hope is, you know, by dawn we'll be in sight of land. So all this nightmare will be over. We'll see land if you know, as long as as long as we can keep the ship afloat, we'll make it to land. We'll be safe. And during the night, it's a terrible, you know, battle, you know, more people get killed and, but they make it. And by dawn they emerge and it's so foggy, they can't see anything. And then as the fog parts, they see nothing but ocean. And it was this, this low point, you know, end of act two, like all is lost and they're furious and Wojciech is ranting and raving and what the hell, I don't understand, you know, and they realize they've been, they've gone right through in the fog. They've sailed right through the channel and come back out into the ocean that that Dracula is not going to release them. Mm. And so all of that, when I saw the movie, one thing that I remember noticing was like, I was talking to Brad Fisher, the producer afterwards, and I remember um, seeing that all that stuff had been sort of rolled into one scene and, and, and the whole going through the channel and the fog and all, you know, it was all gone. And I'm like, did you guys not shoot that or what happened? Everything got like completely like shrunk up. And uh, it was a case of like, you can't, you know, it was just too, I guess Brad said that the consensus was that it was a brutal exhausting experience and that it was too much. It was like people mm-hmm. wanted to be released at one point. They could, they, they didn't want to go on for another 15 minutes and have it get even worse mm-hmm. that it was already sort of enough, enough. Oh, and right. they wanted the journey to, you know, <laughs> and so part of that is cutting, you know, that out and somehow making it work. But, you know, you, you realize that it's, you know, it's, 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 it's just too long and the story needs to kind of, so they pulled that all out. And from what I hear, there were a lot of battles in the editing room and they ultimately, <laughs> 
<laughs> tried to condense that and put it all in one big moment. Wow. Yeah, there's a whole... I hope we would see it as a, as a director's cut at some point, but Andre, I, I asked Andre about it because I'm like, he said they did shoot all that stuff. He's like, you know, there was a three-hour cut. Dang. And, um, but he said he made the point that every shot is an effect shot because of the sea element and the storm element. Mm. So he's like, you're never going to see the director's cut of it. It's just, it would be cost prohibitive to get those scenes, to get those shots to the point where they would look good. Uh, hmm. I, d- I did think the movie looked good. I thought, yeah. I thought you know, it doesn't yeah. have a huge budget, but I, I like there was nothing in it that I was like, that didn't quite work. Right. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. I thought it looked great. Yeah. yeah. I liked it. I, it came out a lot more colorful and um, the colors were much more sort of lush than I thought. I thought they were going to go for a very grimy, like master and commander, you know, everything sort of gray mm-hmm. and grimy. Instead it was sort of felt very like, deep blues and reds and oranges and flickering. Like it was very lush. Yeah. I think it gives a nice contrast between the day when it's safe mm-hmm. and the night when right. everything is a little more washed out and dark and blue and gray. And mm-hmm. yeah, I noticed that too. Yeah. The, the daytime was very rosy and happy and comfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then nighttime descended. Yeah. <laughs> you got anything else? Uh, you're you're always welcome to tell us about future upcoming projects if you have any in the hopper that are <laughs> you're able to talk about. Well, everything is on hold right now for the strike. There were yeah. two projects I had that got paused. One I don't think I'm allowed to talk about. Um, the other is a, a project that I'm hoping to get to. It's my first, hopeful, hopefully my first directing project. And that's a oh, cool. kind of a horror comedy. Um, I don't have a title for it yet, but it's a very fun project and it revolves around a um, group of people who are like a Discovery Channel type ghost hunter show mm-hmm. and they, they go to a location that turns out to actually be haunted but they're they're basically sort of scammers like they make the show, they, they make this stuff look like it's haunted and this is the story of them actually stumbling into a legitimately haunted place mm. oh, um, nice. so that's a fun <laughs> thing that I'm working on a friend, a guy named Tom Martin is, is helping me with it, but we're not, again, that's got paused because of the strike. So there's nothing happening on it. I, mean, we, I think we had an outline before the strike, but it's been how many months now? So that, that's not going forward. And then I've got um, spec stuff that I can work on. Um, and there's sort of a diehard kind of story in a prison, in a maximum security prison that I'm excited about that I'm working on. That's uh, me trying to channel my love of diehard and uh, <laughs> yes. and 80s you know hard action movies <laughs> well and it's got to be hard i mean writing is what you love and it's also your job and but when you can't get paid for it you have to have some other kind of outlet yeah i'm doing i, I have a comic book company on the side and and that's fun for me because a lot of times scripts you know they you you, you don't always they don't think it takes forever to get them made and so as a as a screenwriter you can have a very strange career where you work a lot you get hired to rewrite things but nothing gets made you know you don't have a lot to show for it mm. And um, for, for years, I was working as a writer and didn't have any credits. Just everything would, you know, for one reason or another, would stall out or not get made. Or So I, at a certain point, I got a little frustrated with it and I started doing comics. And I started a comic company with a friend and I would take scripts that were sitting around that didn't get uh, done. And we would, you know, turn it into, like, I don't think I have any of the books here, but we would have a fun book that we did of a monster script of mine, an early monster script called Abomination. It's like a monster in the Arctic. And it's a guy in a lighthouse trying to defend himself from this sort of Arctic creature. So we did that. And um, I'm working on a project right now called Magic. It's like a man on the run type story, but he has magical abilities and he's being pursued by people. It's, it's like in the mold of Starman or the Incredible Hulk. You know, it's that mm. kind of a... Yeah, yeah. Nice. Cool. It goes from place to place. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. All right. I think we can wrap up. Yeah. 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 Well, Braggy, thanks again for doing this. This is a really a lot of fun. I I had a great time at the movie, and uh, and yeah. Yeah. Great having you. Great movie. Great time. Great chat. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. It was fun. Oh, how can people find you online if they want to find you? I'm not on Twitter anymore, really. Uh, probably. Um, God, Facebook. I am on Facebook, and my comic company, Mythos Comics, has a Facebook page. So they can always message message me through Mythos. Okay. Um, that's probably the best way. Cool. I think we might hang out and do some some kind of after talk, but um, but I think I think that's everything we need from you. So I looks like yeah, looks like you're good. So you can you can go ahead and close your browser if you want to. And uh, just thanks again. Yeah, this has been yeah. tons of fun. Thanks, man. Yeah. Uh, so 
doing a little bit of uh, afterwards after after Braggy uh, yeah. hung up, but uh, I thought that was really cool. And so thank thank you to Colin to reaching for reaching out. Yeah, you know, it was such a great talk with him last time, and I I, I, <laughs> I just kind of threw it out there saying, yeah, I know he's busy, and it's in the middle of the writer's strike, and mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I wrote this email. He responded within 15 or 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> was, awesome. He was so excited. I'm like, yes, we really want to do this, but we have to see the movie first, and so we'll, we'll contact you in a couple <laughs> yeah. of weeks. So, yeah. Yeah, so we were recording this on the Friday after we saw it on the Thursday Thursday night show. And I thought it was really, really a, a fun movie. And uh, like, it was yeah. what I kind of expected it to be. I, I honestly, I expected everybody to die off, but I, I thought it was really cool hearing from right. him, like, how can I cheat just a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> um, and and yeah, yeah that's, we will eventually circle back and pick up Dracula and some of those adaptations uh, later this year. Um, make Colin read the rest of the book, even if he doesn't want to. <laughs> I will. I will read it. <laughs> and we'll suffer through. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, anything else we wanted to say about this one? You know, if Stephen King and Guillermo del Toro both like it, mm-hmm. you should probably go see it too. Yeah. I mean, right? like, after one day, right, there's no tomato meter score for, for like, audience score or anything. Mm-hmm. Not hugely loved by critics at this point, but, you know, that could turn around a little bit. But I thought it was well worth seeing. up, so hey. Yeah. And you know, it's it was fun. It's not like a big existing IP kind of thing. It's a little mm-hmm. this little niche of, you know, car- carved off a little piece of Dracula for his own and I thought right. that was cool. Yeah. yeah. We did record another episode with Phil that I'll probably release later in the month. So releasing them out of order just because I feel like this one I want to get out there while the Timely. while we know the movies in the theater, you know, you never know how long one's going to last in there because this isn't like right. a major Right, it's it's not the the trench, unfortunately. <laughs> um, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it right. is. I, I, I it unequivocally <laughs> is um, that it's you know it's this is the kind of stuff that's cool to have like a, mm-hmm. a a more independent project make it you know especially one that started in the '90s. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. That's nuts. the patience involved and the mm-hmm. the waiting. Although I I guess after a while maybe you get used to it, but still. I well, mean, it sounded like he had just been like, well, I. I gave up a long time ago. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so yep. do do the comic books. Boom. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So anyhow, like like I said, we'll uh, we'll release this one more in the near term, and then then throw the the other one down to the end of the month. It's not as time sensitive. Yeah. Um, we, we we can give uh, Phil and and his crew some more clicks mm-hmm. a little later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. We will talk to you next time. Until then, may the road rise up to meet you, and may the book always fall open to where you left off 25 years ago. (laughs) All right, bye, everybody. Bye.